Welcome to the Midcoast Sports Network Podcast. Here's your host, David Brown. And welcome to episode two of Jordan on Jordan. We finally have some stuff to review because the first two episodes of The Last Dance finally premiered on Sunday night on ESPN. And... I'll just be honest, it was awesome. Like, there, there's there's no other way to put it. What was your initial reaction, just just to the first two episodes, just your, your first initial thoughts? Well, number one, it just seemed like after being on Twitter and Instagram for the last, you know, few days, that everyone in the world was excited about this. Uh, we talk about it there, obviously, being a shutdown in sports. And it seemed like everybody was looking for something, and, and this just filled the void. Uh, and so... The, my first impression, honestly, was that it's so awesome to see the different dynamics that went into play during that 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 final season uh, of of their second three P. It's just as a as a kid growing up, you just watch the games, you know what I mean, and all of the underlying storylines that were just going on during that entire season from the start of it. Just to me, it seems bonkers that they were still able to win a championship. <laughs> Right, and, and that's kind of the thing, too, is is what's weird is we know how this ends, but there's so much mystery to it almost. Like, the, the second episode ends on the cliffhanger of Scottie Pippen requesting a trade. And my my first thought afterwards is, like, how in the heck did they keep it all together? <laughs> and, and that's what we're going to find out over subsequent episodes, but it was, to me, it was such a good start just because it outlined... Okay, this this is some very chaotic stuff happening. Absolutely. Well, and then I, I, one of my buddies uh, posted, he was like, God, I hope Scotty doesn't get traded. And then you think about it, it's like, yeah, well, of course he doesn't. But like you said, that intrigue is built up, though, to where, like you said, it's just it's so chaotic, it seems like, that it doesn't seem plausible that they would end up winning, number one, winning as many games as they did during the regular season, and then obviously still winning the championship. It just, I, I don't know, it was like for, for it to be the final year of a dynasty, it just seemed like everything was about to come off. The, you know, the wheels were about to come off before the season really even got started. For sure. It's, 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 it was fascinating television right off the get-go, and I just can't, I can't believe we got eight more of these things. There you go. It's going to be a fun next four weeks, that's for sure. Absolutely. And so what we're going to do here, just to, there, there's a lot of ground to cover, but... I kind of figured out some categories we can discuss, and we're going to have six different categories for the six championships. And so the first thing is the most surprising thing you learned. Uh, For me, it was two things. One, that Michael Jordan golfed with Danny Ainge of the Boston Celtics right before a 63-point game. (laughs) And And then probably the second thing that seems almost unfathomable today he was going to come back for his senior season at North Carolina. Nowadays, kids are lucky to get even one season. Some kids nowadays are just going overseas or going to a different program before they can turn professional and declare for the draft. The thought of Michael Jordan spending four years in college now, that that would never happen. Well, it it also speaks to the differences in time, right? So, like you said, him playing golf with Danny Ainge the day before they're supposed to play against each other, in the first round of the Eastern Eastern Conference playoffs, if that happened today and there was one pitcher posted, everybody would lose their mind. Oh yeah, over something like that. But clearly, it didn't impact him. You know what I mean? Clearly, he was still locked in and focused. Right, it fueled him a little bit more from the sounds of it, from losing a little bit of money on the golf course. 
so I think that it's just different times, man. It's, it's just different times. What, um, what surprised you? Yeah, for, for me, it was the fact that Phil Jackson entered the year with a one-year contract and being told that it was his final year at the beginning of the season. Uh, like you said, you think of a guy who had just led the Bulls to winning five out of the last seven championships, and he's on a one-year deal and has been told this is his final year of his contract. Like, he will not have his contract renewed. To me, again, this day and age, that seems just completely bonkers that, that you would have such a dominant coach in, in such a dominant era, and you just want to blow everything up because you can't get along. It, it, it just it shows me that like winning, obviously, to the Bulls higher-ups wasn't paramount over everything. They wanted to win, but they wanted to have credit for winning instead of just accepting the way things were <laughs> and obviously accepting the wins that came along with it. That, that was the thing that blew my mind the most. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get into the Jerry Krause portion of this a little bit, but I agree with you in terms of that. Just think about this. Not only was it a one-year deal, but Jerry Krause tells the media this is Phil's last season, before the season. Like, if that, hap- that, right? that, that doesn't happen today. If that happens today, there's a mutiny, the coach is a lame duck, and the coach probably gets let go because it's not worth the hassle. Like, it's mind-boggling that everyone just accepted this is your last season. Well, and the fact that all the players were kind of riding with Phil, though. You know what I mean? That was the thing that threw me for a loop is, yeah, you have the GM saying this is his last year, he'll not be back, he's on a one-year contract. But all the players are saying, hey, if Phil leaves, we're not playing anymore. And so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, again, the fact that they said that publicly is the, the just the craziest thing in the world to me. Let's move on to the funniest moment of the first two episodes. I, I have a tie. Uh, well, one of them's a little funnier than the other. Uh, Scott Burrell, poor Scott Burrell in Paris asking MJ for a hug. And MJ just giving him, just rolling his eyes, just looking at him like, you haven't won jack squat. And then, of course, there, there's no other way to put this other than the phrase, the traveling cocaine circus. Oh my god. <laughs> Talk about MJ walking into a kind of a dumpster fire there. Oh my goodness. And, and you got a, a, a really, like, a heartfelt, like, l- ginormous laugh from MJ when he heard that. Oh, right, because I'm sure he was like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it was. You can tell he didn't want to say it that way. Uh, but again, it's like growing up in the era that we did, I, you had heard stories about how the NBA had such a bad image, you know, from those kind of 70s and 80s of just being this drug-filled league. And clearly that was the case of the Bulls, too, during those times. Un- unreal. Any, any other funny <laughs> moments stick out to you? Um, so as a guy who can't do anything around the house, uh, when MJ's dad was making fun of him for not being handy and not being able to fix things and he loses patience with him and tell him to go inside and start baking cookies with his mom. Um, to me, that was hilarious. Uh, just because again, obviously everybody has different strengths, different weaknesses, but MJ talked about how, you know, he was starving for attention from his dad and his brother and his dad were more alike with the, you know, kind of being hands-on and, and being able to fix things and just kind of like work with their hands, and that wasn't something he was good at. So the fact that MJ's dad just, like I said, made fun of him from an early age, it's like you got to develop some thick skin if that's what you're growing up with. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And what's funny is you see in his first years as a bull, like, he's doing his own dishes, he's vacuuming. I'm just like, Michael Jordan used to vacuum? That, that blows my mind. <laughs> There you go, right? It's like you forget that, as he talked about, he was a 21-year-old entering the league who really enjoyed college, you know what I mean? So 
I'm sure even though he was the dude coming into the league, obviously, as a number three pick, it just, I'm sure life was a little bit more normal there, again, when you don't have cameras in your face 24-7. So we got to the funny stuff. Uh, I, I thought about what, what was the most poignant or, or emotional moment. Uh, there, were, there were a couple for me. Uh, MJ seeing a video of his mom describing a letter asking for money and for like actual <laughs> literal stamps, which is which is just such a foreign concept today. But but Scottie Pippen's backstory is is, is honestly kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent agree with you on that one. Um, when you talk about it, he was they said he was a manager for NAI school when he first started out in college, uh, and then to go from that to being one of the top five players in the NBA for a decade is like you said it's it's crazy to think of but it also probably gives you a little bit more insight to his 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 mindset as he's going on again he probably didn't think he would be there three years before he was in the league and and to have such a large jump had to just throw you for a loop you know again just from a, a mental capacity yeah they they talked about how you know he was one of 12 kids uh, his dad had a stroke, had to be confined to a wheelchair. One of his other brothers got paralyzed in a wrestling accident. And, you know, they just lived in, in poverty in rural Arkansas. And as you said, coming from a, a, a manager of an NAIA team to, to be one of the best players in, in professional basketball just shows the, the, the real struggle he had to overcome just to even make it. Exactly. And I'm, and I'm sure that's probably what led to, obviously, later on in the episodes, they talk about, him just being so disgruntled and having such a chip on his shoulder is he came from nothing. And now that he's arrived, he really hasn't arrived financially. You know what I mean? (laughs) That, that was the theme of that whole second episode is that there just did not seem like there was a, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, valuing or, you know, understanding of of the value that, that Scotty brought to the team. And there wasn't an appreciation for it. You know, this year you wouldn't imagine somebody going into the final year of their contract being so grossly underpaid. I think they said he was the 122nd highest paid player in the league. He's the second, sixth highest paid player on his own team, but clearly one of the top five players in the league. And for the Bulls not to restructure that contract, again, it just shows you how much control the organization's had. Uh, but like I said, his backstory probably played into a lot of, uh, of his mindset during that time. And, and that leads right into what was honestly probably the, the biggest, I would say, storyline of the, the first two episodes is Pippen's contract. And so the backstory goes like this. He signs this contract after they win the first title in 91. It's for seven years and $18 million. Now, of course, $18 million to most normal people is a ton of money. And as you said, Jordan, his background and coming from such abject poverty made $18 million. And he even says this in the film. Like, I needed to take care of my family, and so $18 million helped me do that. And just not knowing how the NBA was going to explode and how his salary would seem so paltry compared to everyone else, you, you feel for him because based on his value, he was clearly worth a lot more, but he was pulled by his family. So, so it's, it's interesting to see how his heart was in the right place the whole time. Yeah, well, and it's tough for you because... Uh, you know, did a little reading on, on that afterwards, and I think Jerry Reinsdorf even said it. He wouldn't have taken the deal. I think his his uh, agent at the time tried to talk him out of taking that deal. But like you said, to a kid uh, who's grown up in poverty, who's one of 12, who's probably seen his entire family struggle their entire lives, 
to think, hey, I can get $18 million right now. I don't really care about anything else. It's like you got business people telling you that's not the best decision that I think you're going to be worth more in the future, but I'm sure your family probably already thinks you're worth a lot more than you really are, um, and you're trying to take care of so many people. I think that's just the classic example of how some of these athletes can get into such bad financial trouble so fast is because you go from being broke to being a millionaire overnight, essentially. And then not only that, we always know, you know, if you're a millionaire, the government's going to take 45, 50% of that in taxes, but to the rest of your family, your extended family, they think you're a multimillionaire. You know what I mean? They think you have money just hands over fists coming in. And when you're trying to take care of everybody, that money seems to run out fast. And so I'm sure that's why he just wanted to stockpile as much as he could, as fast as he could. Yeah, and, and obviously that leads to to all the tension that builds up and him requesting a trade after basically Jerry Krause was saying, oh, we might trade you, we're not going to re... And Jerry Reinsdorf saying, we're not going to renegotiate your contract. It, it all came to a head at that point. And so that leads into next category, best quotes. There, there's a, a ton of quotes, but... Uh, he delays surgery on his foot till right before the start of the season, and his reason was, and I and I obviously have to you know censor myself a little bit. I don't want to f up my summer. <laughs> it's not nuts, but like you said, when you don't feel appreciated, why would you do anything uh, for the betterment of the team or the organization when they don't they don't clearly care about you? Right. It it, it makes it makes total sense, and you can see it from from his perspective of why he was so angry and why he he basically did this to be a slight at management. And what's funny about that is, obviously, at the end, MJ says, you know, it was it was selfish of Scotty to think of himself over the team. But the, the weird part was Phil Jackson seemed to be okay with it. And th- I think that's part of why he was so loved by his players. Like, you hear the term players coach a lot, but if, if Phil has your back and says, we'll, we'll just manage without you, it, it really goes to show how he, over the course of these next couple episodes, how he's really going to have to massage a lot of sensitive situations and still get the best out of the team. Well, yeah, because I'm sure he, in his situation, is like, yeah, I got a one-year deal for $6 million. I understand how you feel. Like, you should be angry, and you should do what's best for you. Uh, like you said, with to, to just have such a ginormous rift between management and the coaches and players, I don't think I've ever seen that, you know, as long as I've been paying attention to like the back office of the the NBA to just see that the the two are on completely different pages but they're still successful is just like that's the mind-blowing part to me is that for the Bulls front office organization or organization's front office to want to tear down a dynasty when it's not complete yet when they haven't lost anything yet and move on to the next phase where now Obviously, any organization is trying to milk any type of win they can uh, for as long as they can to, to build their brand. Uh, again, but the Bulls just did not feel that way. Any any other fun quotes that stick out to you? Uh, well, we talked about MJ's dad kind of making fun of him where he said he didn't know the difference between a pliers and a Phillips head screwdriver. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but then Larry Bird, when they were talking about MJ dropping 63 after uh, was it game two, uh, of the the Eastern Conference playoffs there when he said it was God disguised as Michael Jordan. Uh, I just thought that was that was nuts when you got one of the, you know, arguably top ten greatest players of all time just talking about how he was just sitting back and there was nothing anybody could do with MJ at that time. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, when you play basketball, you I think a lot of it, you play for the acceptance of your peers. And so when you get that type of praise and that level of acknowledgement, 
from one of the greatest. It, it has to make you just feel feel good about what you're doing. For sure, for sure. Uh, a couple other fun quotes along that line. Uh, it, it's a it's a very small snippet, but Bobby Knight, who was the coach of the Olympic team in '84, said Michael Jordan's the best basketball player I've ever seen, and he says this before MJ has played an NBA game. And yep. we we know Bobby Knight, obviously, you know, put aside you know what you feel about him as a person, the man knows basketball, and for him to say that after before MJ's played an NBA game, that that's pretty good foreshadowing. Well, I think what's what's interesting about that is that some people throw out those terms with it when they've only seen these guys playing games. Bobby Knight was able to see him practice, and I think and, and, you know his work ethic and just his competitiveness and just how fearless he was. And so, when you're able to see guys' preparation and then go out there and perform on a consistent basis, I think that's what leads to that level of praise. Because, uh, like you said, you really haven't heard haven't heard Bobby Knight say anything good about a lot of people. Uh, in that regard. So to get that level of praise from a guy like that is, is obviously just re- tremendous. And then one of my final favorite quotes is from James Worthy, who was at North Carolina with Michael Jordan in college, went on to have a Hall of Fame career with the Lakers. And James Worthy said when Michael first came in, James is like, I'm better than him, and I was better than him for about two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, like you said, just talk about the growth. And like you said, talk about James Worthy. One of the greatest players, you know, in Lakers history, obviously, and uh, it's it was fascinating to see all the great players that were around MJ early on in his career too. You know, guys that you forget about, like you said, your your James Worthy, Sam Perkins on those North Carolina teams, um, and then I did, I forgot that Charles Oakley was on the Bulls early on in that in his career. You know, with those guys as well. So uh, yeah, like you said, it's just the the, the growth rate. Uh, for MJ just seems so fast early on in his career uh, that he ascended to to greatness in the top, you know, in, in a almost like unfathomable, uh, you know, manner. All right, our fifth category, MVP. Who was in your mind? Who was the MVP of the first two episodes? Uh, I still go back to Phil Jackson. Again, you talk about Pippen being upset. Rodman not being there at the beginning of the year. Uh, obviously, all the ridiculousness there is with Jerry Krause. Coaching on a one-year deal, everybody or the management telling the public that this is your last year, regardless if you win 82 games or not. Uh, to be able, starting 0 and 4 on the road, I think they said they did. To be able to manage all of that and somehow pull it together to get these guys all on the same page to win a championship again, that has to be one of the best coaching jobs in NBA history. Not necessarily obviously from an X's and O standpoint. But from a simple point of just managing the chaos that seemed like that it surrounded that team, my MVP is Scottie Pippen, and and it's because just he he got such a rich story, and I think you know future episodes are going to focus on you know Dennis Rodman and Steve Kerr and stuff like that. But but you really got an understanding as we talked about earlier how Scotty got trapped into what ended up being a bad contract, knowing where he came from as a kid, knowing how he grew as a player, and how. In his minds, he was being disrespected. You you understand all the anger and emotion that goes into it, and he was honest about it. He was honest about delaying his surgery. He was honest about feeling he was undervalued. And at the end of the episode, obviously, he requests the trade, and he, in Phil Jackson's words, he berates Jerry Krause at every opportunity. And so that's what I ultimately wanted this documentary to be, and it's obviously starting out great, is we get these rich, colorful portraits of these people, and you understand really what's going on. 
Absolutely, because like you said, you, you don't get that behind the scenes access virtually anymore. Anymore, and and if you do nowadays, it's through what people are saying on Twitter or you know what they're posting on Instagram. Where like you said back then, unless it was said to the public at a you know interview or uh, a podium or something like that, like it, that information just wasn't divulged, so you didn't really know the backstory. So now to hear all the backstory behind everything, you understand, like you said, his his explosion basically after literally every single day. I'm sure having to watch on SportsCenter talk about how undervalued he is, and and you know after a while you start thinking. Wow, are the Bulls the only people that don't see that I'm a valued member of this team? <laughs> and like you said, when he blows up, it, it makes complete sense. And then our final category, the sixth category, I think we both agree on this. The least valuable player of the episode is obviously Jerry Krause. And, Hands down. <laughs> and, and I think it goes here. It, it's, it's tough because he talked about how the, the big quote that always gets misquoted in his eyes is the what he claims is players and coaches alone don't win championships, organizations win championships. He said when it's usually quoted, they take out the alone part to where it's players and coaches don't win championships, organizations do. So he tried to put it in its proper context, but even in the proper context, it's a slight at the players. It just is. And, and, and DB, I'll ask you this. Do you know of any front office who seems like they carry the ego that the Bulls front office did back then. No, and 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 part of that, I'll, I'll say this. They had obviously won five titles in seven years. So in some cases, everyone has an ego. You have an ego, yeah. I have an ego. Everyone sure. in that organization has an ego. But there are certain people who can check their egos, and Jerry Krause just couldn't. And it's, it's mind-blowing to me, when, again, the results that you're having are, are, are literally, like you said, creating one of the best dynasties of all time. But instead of just being able to to kind of celebrate in the wins and do whatever you can to keep that going, you want more of the attention. You want more of the praise. You want people to know what you did. And like you said, I think to a certain extent, everybody has an ego. I think you should. You know what I mean? If you're going to be successful in life, you have to have a little bit of an ego. But to be that out of touch with reality of saying, hey, I'm willing to jeopardize all of the success we've had because I want to prove that I can do it my way. It's just, again, I, I think about today's NBA and with the way that players force management hands when they're in situations they don't want to be in. You take AD, you know what I mean, forcing his way out of, of New Orleans in the last couple of years. You, you take guys basically saying, hey, you know, Paul George, I'm not signing an extension with you, so you should probably trade me, and these are the places that I want to go to. You think about all of these situations, and it makes so much sense because back then, management had all of the power, and they called all the shots. And so if they wanted a dynasty to end, they basically could do that. And, and so it was just mind-blowing to me, again, how how controlling and how prideful and just how, out of, again, out of touch with reality that Jerry Krause was as far as thinking how important his role was and everything. And at this point, no matter who the general manager is, you have to understand who Michael Jordan is. And there was a quote from Jordan. It was right after they won the fifth title. He's in the post-game press conference. And he goes, we have a right to defend our title until we lose it. And, and knowing that competitive drive, like hypothetical scenario, everyone comes back for the 99 season and say they, they, the Spurs end up winning the title in 99. Let's say the Bulls lose to the Spurs in 99. Then it's like, okay... 
it's run this course, now we can start it. But the fact that he ended it prematurely and wouldn't allow all the pieces to to try it again, that that's what's honestly most mind-boggling. And, and like I said, I don't understand it. Even from a business standpoint, like you said, you're like, hey, we have a winner. Why wouldn't we ride this winner out as much as we could? It, it, again, it's going to build our brand. It's going to boost the value of our organization. It's going to make us more attractive when free agents want to come here. You know, it's going to give us, you know, a leg up as far as uh, ticket sales, as far as attracting other coaches that we want here. Obviously, they said Tim Floyd had already been um, pegged as one of the, the the next person to lead the ship. We all know how that went. Um, but it's just, why wouldn't you, like you said, get every single thing that you can out of that group that you have? Is, is again, it, it just it blows my mind that your ego would be that large that you just want to kind of basically flip the middle finger at everybody and say, hey, we're going to do it my way and we're going to be successful. Um, and clearly that was not the case. And for, for those who think we're being unnecessarily harsh, keep in mind that there were players, and, and even Jordan said it, those were great guys in management. Like Steve Kerr, Bill Wennington said, Jerry Krause did a good job, and Jerry Krause was a nice guy. So you, you can have these simultaneous thoughts that, Yes, he was the architect in terms of helping Jordan get teammates like Pippen and Horace Grant and like making trades. From a GM standpoint, he did his job, but from a people person standpoint, he failed miserably. And I think that's where a lot of that gets confused, though, right? Because they said he came over from baseball, and baseball would obviously all the this is before the money ball stuff. But like when you can, when you look at things on basically an analytical standpoint and you can kind of put numbers together. I think that's one skill. But when you're in management, I don't care what type of management you're in, it's about managing personalities to a certain extent. And if you can't do that, it's going to be very, very hard to be successful for an extended period of time. Jerry Krause obviously clearly understood rosters, uh, configuring rosters and what parts fit and how to, how to manage salary caps. He clearly understood that. But his inability to manage people is really was it, well, was his demise. And... What's unfortunate, just in terms of his standpoint, is uh, Jerry Krause passed away three years ago, so he's obviously not interviewed present day for this documentary. It'll just be interesting to see how the rest of the episodes play out, because you did see the balance. You see him get praise for his moves, but also get criticized for his for his you know dealings with you know Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, and the rest of the group. So I, I think that's what I appreciated at least early on is that they are trying to find the right balance. Like hey. He did do some good things in terms of roster construction, but the ultimate demise starts and ends with him. And I think that's the toughest pill to swallow is that you you basically undercut yourself as far as the great job you've done, and then you're you're ready to tear, tear it apart way too early. You know what I mean? It's like you you built this masterpiece, ride it out. You know what I mean? <laughs> keep 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 getting the fruits of your labor. Don't why would you shut it down that fast? Uh, but again, a uh, man's ego can, can really destroy a lot of things, clearly. What's interesting is, and, and I, you know, like like any Bulls fan, I spent this morning, you know, kind of re-watching clips and reading what other people had to say about it. I don't know who came up with this point first, but I thought it was interesting. How much blame goes to Reinsdorf? He's ultimately the owner. He could have fired Jerry Krause at any moment. Absolutely. But I think, again, in typical owner fashion, I think since Jerry Krause was kind of taking the blows, Reinsdorf was in some situations protected a little bit because like he's like, hey, that's the GM. You know, that's the decision he's made. This is why I've hired him. 
I think owners in a lot of those situations like that insulation because they're not taking those arrows from and shots from people calling out, hey, this is not right. The, the, the moves that are being made, the things that are being said aren't right. And so when you have somebody else taking those hits, it makes an owner seem much more comfortable. <laughs> all in all, based on the first two episodes, what are you most looking forward to for the next two episodes? What, what, what more questions do you want answered, knowing the knowledge you have from seeing the first two? Well, my biggest question is, when did the ship start, start to turn, right? Because they talked about how, obviously, all the storylines going into the season, all the contract situations between Scott, with Scotty and, and with Phil, and all of the sources of, of, of contention. But clearly, they had a great season during the regular season still. When did that tide start to turn? That's what I'm looking forward to to seeing is like when did that shift happen when they go on a which I'm sure you know I would imagine they did a you know 10 15 20 game winning streak what what was the catalyst to that that that's what I'm really looking forward to yeah and and, and an offshoot of that goes back to what I posed at the beginning like how did Phil Jackson take all these moving parts and just somehow some way find a way to get this team to win I I, I think from what you said earlier. X's and O's standpoint, yeah, he had better teams, but did he do a better job? And, and keep in mind, he had the Shaq and Kobe Lakers after that. Could he have done a better job than he did in that 97-98 season, knowing we know how it ends? I mean, it's unreal. <laughs> it sure doesn't seem like he could, <laughs> that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, one last thing I'll ask you, because obviously, you know, the part of the reason that you have such a special bond is because you were in and around Chicago during the height of this. There were things that I kind of, as a, as a kid, like I knew it was Phil. It might be Phil's last season. It might be Jordan's last season. I didn't realize Jerry Krause had said to the media, "This is Phil's last season." Like, what? How how big was the media coverage like in Chicago covering this this daily circus? Well, and see, I think as a kid, you know, like I said, we were, I was probably what you know, elementary, middle school during these times. So I just watched the games. Like I didn't really pay attention. To all, the, to all the stuff that was outside of like I kind of had an idea that you know management and the Bulls didn't get along but for the most part I just watched the games and I think that's why it's so cool for me to look back on it because I didn't know 90% of all this other stuff was going on like I didn't understand contracts obviously at the time you know you didn't understand you know leverage from from players and from coaches you didn't understand the moves that management made and I guess I didn't understand or or, or or realize just how aggressive and just how persistent management was to move on from this team. Because from the outside looking on, looking in, you're like, this is the greatest team ever. Let's keep them together as long as we can. You know, like I said, it puts the, the city of Chicago in a whole different light. That's what they're known for now. And for management to just be ready to move on so quickly is mind-blowing. And again, at the time... I had no idea about it. It's crazy. It and we're <laughs> and we're and we're just getting started. There you go. This was fun. So the first two episodes are in the book. Episodes three and four will be on Sunday, April twenty-sixth at eight o'clock Central Time. We will watch those episodes and then we will reconvene next week. Mr. Dalton, as always, a pleasure, a ton of fun, and we'll talk again soon. Hey, looking forward to it, buddy. Thanks for listening to this Midco SN podcast. To listen to any of our past episodes, visit midcosn.com slash podcast.